Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we count it a great privilege to have this day which you give us as a gift every week to just cease from our work and to gather together as your people to hear from your word, to be equipped to walk the walk you've called us to as well as, Lord, to approach your table by your sheer grace. And we pray that as this word is brought forward, as John begins to wrap up this letter to us, that we would see you anew and afresh this morning about why we believe what we believe as your followers, and that you would equip us to be the disciples in our day as the first century disciples were. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Who doesn't love a good courtroom drama? I mean, we all love the great ones of, of the silver screen, Inherit the Wind, To Kill a Mockingbird, Miracle on 34th Street, my personal favorite, A Few Good Men, where Tom Cruise plays a JAG Navy attorney, and he's pushing the buttons of Full Bird Colonel, played by Jack Nicholson. He's just getting to him because Jack Nicholson has a short fuse, his character does. And it gets to the climax, right, of that whole scene, and the colonel says, what do you want from me? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Right? Right? John is giving us the truth, and he's inviting us into the courtroom of God this morning. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles, if you're a guest, and the back of your bulletin is 1 John, because we're going to get the truth. Verses 1 through 5 of John's fifth chapter basically is about how genuine Christians are not defeated by the world's hostility. And you could do a whole sermon on verses 1 through 5, but the whole point about this passage put together is that the climax is 6 through 12. And so, I invite you into the courtroom of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that's being charged, and we are the jury, every single one of us. The readers in the first century were on the jury, and 21st century church and non-church are the jury this morning. So John rises as the lawyer representing Jesus, and he says with a firm voice, I call the water of Jesus' baptism to the stand. That's bizarre. But that's what he does. And he looks at the water and says, Water of Jordan, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God? I do, says the water. You were there that day Jesus was baptized. Please tell us what you saw. Yes, I was there as Jesus came into the waters led by John. He walked waist deep into my waters where John the Baptist was standing and was fully immersed into my waters. And as he came up out of the waters, I saw in a most unusual sight, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus like a dove. And I heard from heaven as the whole crowd heard, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
as clear as a bell, we heard that. John says, thank you, water. I have no further questions. You may be dismissed from the witness stand. My second witness is I call the blood of Jesus to the witness stand. So the blood enters and our jury's eyes get a little widened. This is getting weird. He's called the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross of Calvary to be a witness, okay? So John asked the blood, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to so help you, God? I do. The blood responds. Blood, you were there the day that Jesus was crucified. Tell us what you saw. Yes, I will testify that at his trial before Pilate, Jesus was scourged with a cat of nine tails, and his back was a bloody mess from which I oozed. The crown of thorns caused me to stream down his face. The nails in his wrists and his feet oozed yours truly. Charles Wesley, that, that, that Anglican guy, wrote about this in a hymn you guys sing. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? For a brief moment, there's a hushed silence in the courtroom. Then John continues, Mr. Blood, can you tell us if Jesus actually died on that cross? Absolutely. Jesus died on the cross, and as he died, he, I bear testimony that Jesus is God incarnate, the Son of God. John replies, thank you, Blood. You may step down from the witness box. Well, then, as we see in verse 7 and 8, he doesn't stop there at just the water and the blood. He also calls the Holy Spirit. This is getting serious. Starting to call the, the Trinity forward. But John turns to the jury and says, before I call my third witness to the stand, I wish to point out to the jury that in verse 5 of my chapter... I refer to Jesus as the Son of God, and in verse 6, I refer to him as the Christ. This is a subtle shift, and it's significant. Jesus, the Son of God, is no less than God's anointed. In other words, the Messiah. This Messiah is the one who came to the earth to be the Messiah, not only for the Jewish people, but for the world. He is the Christ, the anointed one who fulfilled God's purpose by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. To verify this claim, I call forth as a witness the Holy Spirit. So a holy hush falls over the courtroom as God the Holy Spirit moves to the witness stand. And John says, how do you, how do you ask the Holy Spirit, God, to tell the truth? Because he's God. He goes, okay. Do you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? It just stops there. The Holy Spirit says, absolutely, I am the spirit of truth. Before I question this witness, John continued, I would like to remind the jury that I have spoken about this witness in my writings. 
Just before the crucifixion, Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit, telling us that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he will testify concerning Jesus in our lives. Jesus said that one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit is to point people to who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, Jesus further taught us that the Holy Spirit will not magnify himself, but will magnify the Lord Jesus. God, the Holy Spirit, reveals the significance of the coming of Jesus into the world. God, the Holy Spirit, who first dealt with your heart when you were lost and in your sin. You were, cannot be saved unless God, the Holy Spirit, draws you to salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit in your salvation is so important that you can't be saved apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus and teaches you the spiritual truth about his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. It's his job to press to your heart the truth of all these things. John continues, he testifies in our hearts and minds the truth of these things, drawing men and women to salvation. He enables men to preach the gospel and empowers people to live out the gospel in their day. In this sense, the Holy Spirit is the first witness to testify to Jesus and his salvation. So then John turns to the Holy Spirit and says, Holy Spirit, were you present at the earthly ministry of Jesus? The Holy Spirit replies, yes, I was present at his birth. I was present at his baptism. I was present throughout his earthly life. I was present at his crucifixion. I was present at his resurrection. I was present at his ascension. I was present with him in heaven and eternity past before his incarnation. I am present with him as the second member of the Trinity for all eternity. So John continues, Holy Spirit, is it your testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? The Holy Spirit responds, absolutely. Jesus is the Son of the living God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You may step down from the witness box. Well, after such a powerful testimony as the jury members, we're thinking that he's going to close his case and present his closing statement. Not so. I call God the Father himself to fully testify. Then the courtroom gets really silent. Heads are bowed as God the Father enters the witness box. With all the reverence that one can imagine and yet with all the confidence of one who knows the Father in an intimate fashion, John looks at the Heavenly Father and says, Father, do you swear to tell the truth, to hold the truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, you. <laughs> I do, says the Father in a thunderous yet warm voice. Heavenly Father, do you recognize this man, Jesus? Is he indeed your son whom you sent to earth? Yes, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you testify that he alone is your son and the only way to salvation? Yes. From the very beginning, even before I created Adam and Eve and before they sinned, causing all humanity to be plunged into sin, I had a plan for salvation for the world. 
My plan was for Jesus, my son, my only begotten son, to come to earth and pay the penalty for humanity's sin through his death upon the cross. I foretold his coming through my prophets. I sent John the Baptist as his forerunner. I sent an angel to Mary to announce to her that she was my choice to be the mother of my son, Jesus. Through Jesus, though Jesus existed one with me throughout all eternity, as the second person of the Trinity, yet he became man. The night of his birth, my angels sang about it. I sent shepherds to witness it. I sent the Magi to pay homage to him and observe him. As a man, Jesus entered his ministry and was baptized as has already been testified. And the night before his crucifixion, he called out to me. He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. And it was not my will that this cup would pass from him. It was my will that my wrath would come upon him to atone for your sins, jury. And I turned over my one and only son to be crucified by evil men. But I did it for a purpose. And he did it willingly for you. This purpose was to make an atonement for your sins. And my son Jesus was crucified, laid buried in a tomb for three days. But after three days, I raised him from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven, where today he sits at my right hand. And one day, I will return, determine the time to come, and my son will come again to the new earth, where my children will live forever, physically, in an eternity that I have planned from the dawn of time. And I give eternal life as a gift, and this eternal life is in my son Jesus. So I say, God the Father. And so after a pause that seems to last an eternity, John speaks with a reverent softness. Thank you, Father. You may step down from the witness box. The jury's hearts are kind of in their throat after that one, and we think that John's going to give his closing statement, but au contraire, John's not done. Instead, to our amazement, he declares he has two final witnesses to summon to the stand. Verse 10, the twins, whoever one and whoever two. Never before in history have two twins taken the stand at the same time. So in a strange way, we all in the courtroom are now represented whether we believe in Jesus or not. I call whoever to the stand. John intones, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? They say, I do, I do. So to whoever won, he says, have you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and found him to be the Savior from all your sin? I have. Do you then testify concerning the truth of what I myself have said about Jesus in all of my writings. I do indeed, says whoever won. Turning to whoever two, John asks, 
Have you come to Jesus Christ and found him to be the savior of your sins? He is he your savior and Lord. Whoever too says, nah, nah, I, I, I don't buy it. Oh, I believe in God. You know, but, you know, I don't, I don't read the Bible. I don't, I don't, I don't like to pray. I, I don't, I don't need to come to church, really, and I don't do fellowship with the church. I, that's, that's, that's for religious people. John looks at him in a stern voice and says, so you refuse to believe the testimony that God the Father has borne in this very courtroom? Yeah, I do. I believe God is a liar about what he said in his word. He's perjured himself under oath, I think. Stunned silence fills the courtroom. John speaks, thank you whoever one and whoever two, you may step out of the box. So John now turns to the jury and begins to close his argument. Verse 11, the testimony of the eyewitnesses is clear and irrefutable, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And so as an old man, let me clear the fog and speak with clear simplicity. Argue all you want. Talk about all the gray areas you want. But the issue is crystal clear. I was there when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. I wrote about it in the beginning of my letter, remember? I'm a personal eyewitness. I was the first to see the empty tomb. I was there in the upper room a week after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared to the 12 disciples. I was there at his ascension. From that day until now, I've been telling others about this Jesus. I've written five books of your New Testament, all proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So if you have life, you have it now in the present all the way into eternity. If you don't have this life, you will spend an eternity in his unfavorable presence forever, which is the very definition of hell. So, God has given us eternal life. It cannot be merited. It cannot be earned. You cannot work for it. When someone gives you a gift, you don't pay for it, do you? If you do, that's an insult. A gift, by definition, is something you don't earn or merit. That's the way salvation is. You couldn't pay for it even if you wanted to. All the money in the world could not purchase it. Our salvation is the costliest gift ever, and the price was the death of God's Son for each and every one of us. God himself paid the price of the death of Jesus on the cross. He did not make a down payment, and then we took up the rest of the payments for him. He paid the price in full. So John resumes, and like any gift, you have to receive it. I wrote about it in my first biography. You call it the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. 
It's a gift to be received through Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ is salvation possible. It was Jesus who said in my, first, my biography, chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you receive eternal life from God is through his son, Jesus. And to have the son is just another way of saying that you have truly believed in Jesus Christ's atoning work upon the cross for you. To not have the son is another way of saying you're doing it your way for your own salvation, which is no salvation at all. And you don't possess eternal life. If you have the son, you have that life. If you don't, you don't have life. Faith in Jesus who completed the work of atonement on the cross is the only way to receive eternal life. Eternal life is not just a chronological measure. It's a qualitative measure. Living in his kingdom in the present. So why should you believe this testimony about Jesus Christ? If you have no other answer, it's God himself who has told you that Jesus is the Messiah. His testimony is not merely the testimony of man, but the testimony of God. Above all the testimony, the case rests on the fact that God has revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To refuse his testimony is to call God a liar. We must believe this testimony or suffer the consequences. Loss of eternal life. As one of the jurors, I listened to John this week as I was reading this, and my mind went back to that Sunday in 1983 where I'm sitting in the balcony of Truro Anglican Church. Where as a young man, the Holy Spirit worked in my life, drawing me to himself as my Lord and Savior sitting next to my fiance, Kim Cordova. I didn't have any emotional feelings really, just the light bulb went off. And I thought, this is cool. It's by his sheer grace that I'm right with God, by his grace, and it's a gift. All I need to do is receive it and then walk in the, the, to, in the good works that he's called me to do. I didn't cry, I didn't laugh as I recall. Though I knew what I was doing when I trusted Jesus as my Savior, at that time there was so much I didn't understand. As I grew in my Christian life, I had a deeper sense of the emotion about my salvation more than I did when I was younger. Because sometimes people want a certain feeling in their spine or they want a vision. God, speak to me, they say. But that's seldom how it works. God has spoken to you through his word. One thing is for sure, the Holy Spirit who dwells me, dwells in me, bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. John's concluding argument ends with a stark, terse point. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Echoing Jesus' words in the gospel that Cody read for us in chapter 3, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. All people on planet Earth are headed for one or two destinies. Eternal life or eternal death. And so John 
in tones with a heightened pitch. And he says, notice, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I used the word have in presence tense. Are you in possession of God the Son, Jesus Christ? Of course, the real question is whether Jesus has possession of you. The fundamental truth lies in the words of my biography in chapter 6, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. That is to say, life resides in God the living Father. It is shared by the Son who lives because of the Father. And through him it is mediated to everyone who will make it their own by holding directly and deliberately upon the Son through repentance of their sin and faith in his atoning work on the cross. If you want this life-imparting gospel to be yours, you must receive Jesus as the word of life. Life flows from the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Son into us, and we believe this good news. Eternal life is not our being a good person, but about Christ being God in our lives. So John looks at the jury in his eye, our eyes and says, I rest my case. I cannot be help but being struck by the note of certainty in every witness who John brought forward to testify this morning. I've heard these words throughout this letter, we know, we know, we know. It's going to keep going. We know. There's no presumption. There's no guesswork. There's no blind leaping. The basis of the truth of Jesus Christ is the testimony of God our, himself. We Christians partake of this certainty as well. I bear the testimony myself, validated by God's Holy Spirit who indwells me. Now I begin to see why this knowledge is essential if I'm going to experience the victorious life in Jesus Christ that verses 1 through 5 speak about. I know now that my own feelings can never serve as the grounds of my assurance. I need something far more permanent than my fluctuating feelings. God's character of unchanging love and faithfulness, coupled with the permanent work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on the cross for my salvation and yours, remains unaffected by my shifting feelings and grounds of my Christian life. So I recall Spurgeon's words in his day. He drives this point home and he says, Many go to heaven with very little comfort on the road. I do not commend them for their lack of comfort, but I do advise you, instead of looking to singular experiences as a ground of confidence, look to the bleeding Savior and rest alone in him, for if you have him, you have eternal life. Adrian Rogers, the late pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis said, it is a better to be a shouting Christian than a doubting Christian. We ought not walk around with, a question, with our heads like a question mark hanging over, but like an exclamation mark because you're a child of God. 
I'm secure trusting in his loving and atoning work for me. How about you? And so the gavel falls in the courtroom. The jury goes back to the chamber to make their decision. What's your decision about Jesus? I'm not asking you. John's asking you as we read this. Deuteronomy 17 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, there is truth. In other words, of C.S. Lewis, your choices to who Jesus is are rather limited. In light of what Jesus has said about himself, in light of what the water, the blood, the Holy Spirit, the Father has said about Jesus, he is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. If he's a liar, case dismissed. If he's a lunatic, case dismissed. But if he is Lord, repent of your sin, believe in him for your salvation, and fall at his feet and worship him because he is worthy of all our devotion. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that John begins to wrap up his letter, reminding us that we can be overcomers in you, Lord Jesus Christ, because of the testimony that you yourself make. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at why we do believe because of this testimony, that you would strengthen us in this belief that you would take those of you who love you passionately and strengthen us in that passion. That if there be anyone here in the sound of my voice who's got a hard heart, that you would soften it to the reality of your offer of grace and truth to them. And that you would take the lukewarm and set their hearts on fire with love for you, Lord, because it's true. And we can handle it because you are Lord. Revive us, Lord, in that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.